Thank you so much, Erin. Oh, and I'm <laughs> really grateful that we record all peace talks. So if there's there's a lot in that talk. Yeah, if you it got technical. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but if you want to go back and listen to it, it's recorded and you can access it on all podcast mediums and share it with friends as well. Um, we have a time for Q&A and because we do record the sessions tonight, if there's any, uh, anything sensitive that comes up in our questions for Erin, um, just come and see me afterwards and we can cut it out. Don't want to stop that from you being able to ask something. Um, but yeah, are there questions for Erin in response? Puns welcome. <laughs> Hello, thanks Erin. I was wondering if it's outside the scope of your talk, feel free to say, because I'm going to somewhere else in the song. But I'm wondering how you, th what do you think the um, watchmen are doing in the song? Because there is actually yeah. one episode of violence against the woman, like quite an explicit episode of violence against the woman in the song. And yeah, yeah, that yeah. Wasn't coming so, so I was wondering what you think they're, how they're functioning and how they're contributing to what's going on. Yeah, so that's why um, in the beginning of the talk I'm really clear when I say that there's no hierarchy, no submission, no dominance. That's only in the relationship between the lover and the beloved because certainly outside of that we see that her brothers commit violence against her and I believe that the watchmen do as well. So again, I want to say that I don't think they're real people, I don't think it's a real event, but that doesn't mean that that doesn't happen. And so I still think it's something we need to heed um, and yes I certainly think there is violence in the song so yeah good question that article's coming oh, I found your paper really interesting thank you Thanks. just one thing I can't quite get my head around is your the point about helping men to understand female sexuality female sexual arousal I'm just thinking of the global phenomenon of, say, rape in marriage and uh, women being raped multiple times for years and years and years. I just don't see how those men... Th those men aren't really interested in understanding female sexuality. They're not thinking, um, what might pleasure her? Like, it's not even... A, wouldn't even enter their minds. Yeah. So it feels like a bit of a long bow to me. I can't quite get my head around... Yeah, I, How I that would reduce that level of violence that is so common? It's, look, it's a valid point, and I think you are very right that there are vast num numbers of men who don't understand female sexuality and don't care to. Um, so not in a way that I don't want to lessen that point because I agree with you, but that's why I'm really focused on primary prevention. So I want to start at the level of kids when they're learning about sex and sexuality, learn about consent. When they're at an appropriate age and they can understand, learn about how different bodies respond and what arousal might look like for different sexes. So hopefully if we start educating people young and we start changing these attitudes at a community, societal, individual level now, maybe when those boys grow up, they won't then be the kind of men that don't care about their partner. Okay. So um, this is something that we, we talk about um, in our Common Grace team quite a bit, is this kind of societal level change takes at least 30 years. So we're talking generational change. So as much as I, I don't like to say it, yeah, I think there are men who are lost causes, 
but I also think that we can work to prevent it so that fewer men grow up to hold those kinds of attitudes and behaviours. Um, I had the same kind of question. I was trying to work out what is the link between understanding female sexual desire and, and I guess just following on from that question, wondering is it about um, seeing the woman as a subject and as a participant rather than, a, you know, like so it's about, is it about sort of changing her position? If you understand she's an actor in the whole action yeah, yeah. and that and how I don't know no really excellent point so yes it does come down to our society still thinks in terms of women being passive and women being something that sex is done to not willing participants or people who initiate or people who pursue a relationship so I think if we start to think differently on that and we start to think through, we're much more comfortable talking about male sexual desire than we are about female. I mean, we're even more comfortable talking about male bo body parts than we are about female. Why is that? Why don't we change that? So that's another part of why I think educating people about female bodies and sexual arousal and that we are as much agents as a man should hopefully start to shift some of that thinking. I think I have a question also connected to those things. And I'm still working out what the question is. Um, is part of that then that if we're kind of, if the way we talk about women and sex is that women don't desire sex, then it becomes, I guess, a way to control or elicit certain behaviours. Um, and that what, oh, sorry, I don't know your name, but what you were talking about before is that that if if that is a way that you can control someone, it's not really about sex, it's about violence. It's Whereas about power, if, coercion, if you control. expect women to actually have an opinion about themselves sexually, it's harder to control them, maybe? Is that part of...? Yes, I completely agree. So there's, there has been research that has been, that's been out there for years that clearly stated that women do not desire sex as frequently as men. And that's been debunked. It's simply not true. We just didn't understand female arousal and desire. So I think that feeds into our attitudes as well. So there's been this pervasive myth at a cultural level that women just don't want sex as much. It's, it's just not true. We just didn't understand female arousal or desire. I mean, up until recently, we didn't even know how big the clitoris was. That's, like, how long have we been embodied, people? How long have we been on this earth? Like, it's fairly basic stuff. You think we could have gotten it together? So, yeah, I totally agree. To move the conversation from female sexual arousal to the Sydney Anglican Synod <laughs> seems, <Yes>. like, <laughs> seems like a daunting consideration for That's anyone so please don't hold that against me that first can I just that was the best segue ever <laughs> continue <laughs> I have I, I have been a member of the Synod of the Anglican Church of Australia for some decades and that should not be held against me the I have heard in that Synod biblical injunctions concerning the subordination of women my wording in marriage through to a commendable, I believe, discussion of violence against clergy wives in the most recent session of Sydney Synod. In all of that discussion, in all of those years, quoting from Genesis through to various epistles, 
I have never heard a single speaker refer to the Song of Songs as contributing some understanding. That's, yep. that's the first consideration I want to sort of mention. And, you, and in, to, to, ask, to ask another thing, the absolutely central teaching of the Sydney Diocese is that the situation of b biblical teaching on the situation of women demands a distinction between women in society and women in the church and family. In society, women have complete equality, so there's nothing unbiblical about recognising Her Majesty Elizabeth II as head of the Commonwealth or recognising a female Prime Minister or recognising a female Governor-General or whatever. <coughs> but a completely different situation exists in the family and in the church. And there, as you're nodding your head, you obviously know the truth, there uh, the situation of women is different. Now, is there any... The sec my second question, if you like, is there anything in Song, and S Song of Songs that goes to that consideration? Oh, that is a good question. So, I do want to point out the irony of Queen Elizabeth II being the head of the church. That one always gets me. <laughs> Um, but I'm Baptist. Um, okay, Song of Songs. So I think we see glimpses of that in that there's this dichotomy in the world between what women have in society and what women have in either church or marriage. And sometimes there's a dichotomy between what women can do in the church and what women can do in marriage as well. Um, and so I don't, I don't want to disparage a complementarian position, but there's often an inconsistency. And so that always makes me pause and reflect. Um, so I think we kind of see that playing out in Israel's patriarchal society as well. So we see in other books of the Bible that there's a control of female sexuality and an expectation for a woman to perform a certain function or be a certain way but it's different in the song. So I don't think that's probably the answer that you're looking for. I can't think of an example off the top of my head where there's kind of allegiance to someone like Queen Elizabeth. Um, I mean, there are people who think that this is about Solomon and potentially a foreign bride. Um, I don't particularly hold to that exegesis or that theology, but maybe if you did, so I'm probably not answering your question, but I, I do think there's, there's something like it, but maybe not quite what you're after. But I want to, yeah, throw Sorry, to Elise. Can I throw something in as yeah, well? Yeah. Um, in my denominational tradition, the Song of Songs is considered to be about the institutional church mm. and Christ. And like, let's all roll our eyes. But that is how they dealt with the idea that women could be human and have ideas yeah. is by um, turning the whole thing into a metaphor um, and I think that that is, has probably influenced Sydney Anglican history as well to the point where they either don't read it at all yeah. or somehow distance themselves from the humanity of it. Yeah, so what Elisa said is actually a hugely important point. So for the vast majority of history, in both Jewish interpretation and Christian interpretation, um, Song of Songs was interpreted allegorically. So in Jewish tradition, it was 
love for God and love between God and Israel, people Israel. Um, and in Christian tradition, it's Jesus' love for the church. Um, I don't understand how anyone who can read Hebrew thinks that, but far be it from me to cast doubt upon thousands of years of church history. Probably getting too big for my britches there. Um, but yes, yeah, so more recent scholarship has written from the perspective that Song of Songs is love poetry and it is about love between a man and a woman and that that's God-ordained. I mean, if we go back to Genesis, he gave us sex and it's good. So, yeah. But yeah, it, there are still many church traditions that interpret Song of Songs allegorically. Obviously, I don't. Hello. Hi. Um, I don't think this is quite a fully formed question. Maybe it will be at the end. Um, when I was growing up, there was a theologian that I was um, taught in church to really respect and read a lot of his books and everything. And then in my early 20s, um, came across a video of his, a one-minute video, where he um, responded to a question asking what should, um, what should happen if a man is hitting his wife. And the response that he gave was, um, well, obviously there should be love there, but there's not. Um, and eventually it was their submission for a time. should submit for a season. And then there was some really, like, some, some language that was also used in that video that I just won't repeat that I couldn't understand how he could get there. Um, and then a while later he had another video in which he had a chance to respond to what he had said and he just confirmed it. Double down. Yeah, yeah. double down. Double down, yeah. So I wonder, in a, in a church context where there are extremes, I suppose, on both sides of the, the theological debate around it and where we use quite strong language on both, what do you do in a church context where there is so much division around the understanding of either gender relations yeah where, oh sorry, one thing I'll add. I showed this video to a friend and, um, and he, came, he came back and he, and he didn't say it directly to me, but he said it to someone else. He said, oh, I, I can see where he's getting at. He's probably just said it wrong. And I, I could not understand that at all. So I wonder like in a context that's just foundationally understands gender differently in the Bible, how do we create one where violence doesn't exist? With great difficulty. Um, yeah, so different denominations and different traditions will respond differently. Um, my bottom line is that that is not okay. That is never okay. And a woman should never have to stay with an abusive spouse. But that doesn't answer your question about what to do in a church that does hold that belief. Um, so I, I do want to talk about the distinction between what the Bible might have to say on that and what Christian tradition might have to say on that. Um, so some denominations will hold to that view that the only reason a woman can divorce her spouse, divorce her spouse or leave her spouse is in the case of infidelity. That's about tradition, not Bible, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what I believe is that as soon as a 
often a man, but a partner, becomes abusive, they've broken the marriage covenant. But, yeah, how to get churches who think differently theologically, but also think differently in terms of what might be tradition or doctrine, keep speaking up if you can. It'll cost you. Um, Be careful in the way you speak up. Speak to other people who might want to speak up and support you. At some point, I think we need to make the decision on whether we stay in a denomination or in a church and whether we move on. Um, So there's a really helpful book by Cara Martin on work and what to do if your workplace becomes toxic. And she has kind of a, a checklist of if you're going to stay in that environment, here's the way to kind of care for yourself and set boundaries. But if that boundary is crossed, then leave. You've done everything you can. And I like to apply that to churches because churches can be just as, if not more, toxic than workplaces. So if you make the decision to stay in and change from the inside, make sure you've got a good support network. Keep speaking up. Be like the woman in Song of Songs. Be assertive. Use your voice. Um, But if they cross your boundary, then feel free to leave. Might not be the answer you wanted, but that's my... It's my line. Could you share some thoughts on how the gospel of Jesus speaks into this? Yeah. Um, So, obviously, I I don't think Song of Songs is about Jesus' love for the church, but I do think that there's a gospel imperative there. So I see the way the woman is treated by her beloved is countercultural in the same way I see Jesus as being countercultural, in the same way I see Jesus standing up for women, in the same way I see Jesus healing women, in the same way I see Jesus making a difference for women in a culture that was patriarchal. Um, So I see similarities. Um, If I were preaching, then I'd bring it back to the gospel. Um, But because this is a little bit different, I kind of wanted to leave it there. But that's such an important question. Thank you. Firstly, great puns. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I, I wonder where, if, if a church is, church is healthy and a church is, is, um, is ready, to, is ready to, to move and act, what is, what is, our, what is our role? Um, how, do we, how do we move forward to create a safer society for family and women? Uh, so many things. Great question. Um, so I might, I mean, obviously, so uh, Mitch and I are at the same church um, and obviously no church is perfect and I don't want to say that my church is, but we've just started doing some really interesting things in this space. Um, so we're trying to get more women preaching. I think that's a really good start. Um, we've recently launched a uh, legal service for women fleeing domestic and family violence. I think that's a really good start. So, I mean, we're a community church, so we need to be focused on the community and changing community attitudes. But we also need to be looking at what's happening in our own congregation. Um, So our church has, in the three years that I've been there, uh, spoken about domestic and family violence numerous times. So it's not something that we sweep under the rug, it's something we talk about. Um, We do youth talks about sex, we don't just kind of 
hope they'll figure it out for themselves. So there are so many things that we can be doing in our church communities, and that's just a few examples of what our church is doing. Um, did anyone else want to share maybe what their church is doing? Yeah, I something that's been sort of in my mind a lot lately has been the female-led experience. Um, and, you know, reading it in Song of Songs was really cool. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I've been thinking about is how um, I can try to change my thinking now. Um, sorry, this topic is really touchy for me. But to, to remind myself now that I'm in control and I can welcome this experience, um, but it's so deep-seated. You know, like it's, yeah. it's stuff that we've been taught since we were children. You sit and you be quiet. You don't have an opinion. You don't say no. You have to be a people pleaser. Our job as women, as females, is to serve and to please people. And so I guess one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, raising my son, but also if I have a daughter someday, I, I want the next generation to... Um, for females to be able to know that they can say no, to know that they can, you know, give consent if they want it and to say no if they want, want to do that. Um, but the problem is, I guess from what I experienced in the past, is, you know, to be in that moment and, you know, sometimes a guy will just go and kiss you or something and it's disgusting and you get so shocked and you don't know what to do and then the old thinking comes in, you know, and you just freeze. And I, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, what can we do now to help the next generation to not have that deep-seated thing to just shut up and let things happen, yeah. you know? Because it's disgusting. Oh, that question is huge. Um, that's a tough one. Um, so if I can talk from my own experience, um, I have a, a son, and now I have a daughter. Um, and I'm trying to raise them in exactly the same way. So I'm trying to make sure they have the same opportunities. I'm trying to make sure I give them the same choices. I'm trying to make sure I reinforce the same ideals. Um, I try and teach both of them about consent. So. Um, something that my five-year-old can understand is you ask someone before you give them a hug. Um, but I also teach him that I would like people to ask you if you want to be hugged. And he, he knows that he can say no. And I do the same with my daughter, even though she's only one. And so that I'm hoping, because I'm getting them when they're really young, that at least that's two people making a difference, so not only for themselves, but for others. Um, and I hope that lots of us are doing that, and by many of us doing that, and so not only parents, but aunts, uncles, teachers, doctors, nurses, people leading churches, if we all start to do these things, we will see change. But the difficulty in doing it now is I teach my son these things, and he started school this year. Sometimes the school does really well. 
sometimes they don't, and you, you can't control that. So I think you've just got to be the person that keeps saying yes means yes, no means no. Let's keep seeing how this plays out. Let's apply it in different situations. But yeah, it's, it's tough. Hopefully the tide will start turning. Thank you for that question. Might just do this one and if there's one more after that. I just have a quick question about the New South Wales review of the mistaken belief of consent defence yep. to the rape law. Last, I've, last I heard of it was when the Bar Association said it should stay. I haven't heard about anything since. Do you know if that's gone anywhere? I actually don't. I should follow that up. Do you? Hi. Um, I work in the sector and I, one of our employees is a legal and policy officer, so she works a lot on this issue. Um, we're one of a number of organisations that made submissions to the um, Law Reform Commission about this subject, and so it's a full review of sexual consent law. Um, that particular case hinged on a mistake of fact defence, so essentially the idea that um, if you mistakenly believe the person has consented, that counts as consent. Um, the laws yep. around that are even worse in Queensland than they are here by some horrid um, situation. <laughs> um, so last I heard, um, there was actually a series of essentially roundtable discussions with a whole bunch of different stakeholders who made submissions last Friday. So it's still something that they're reviewing all the submissions around. Um, I think the Bar Association also wants to put in like a lesser offence around sexual assault. Um, their excuse being that they want more convictions, but it also creates the idea that like, oh, I accidentally sexually assaulted somebody and it's not as big a deal. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of just one proposal, but there's a whole bunch of really good proposals out there as well from people in the sector who've been fighting for a long time on this issue. So um, yeah, it's still in the hands of the Law Reform Commission and they're still working on it. Thank you. Um, you might be able to answer this as well. I know that it's kind of kicked off a review in other states as well, um, but that's all I know. You don't happen to know where other states are up to? Um, the main one I... Uh, actually, there's, yeah, there's interesting things happening around yeah. the country. So Queensland specifically, um, last year, some of you may know that a book called Eggshell Skull by Brie Lee was released, um, and she talked about her experience of childhood sexual assault. Um, and so in the last year, she's been working on advocacy in Queensland because their consent laws are some of the most yep. horrifying in the country. Um, so, yeah, some really strong campaigning happening in, in that area. Um, and I think she started a letter-writing campaign only a few weeks ago. So that's happening. And I think, I think there's been some movement, but I'm not quite sure on that. And then um, Tasmania and one other state also yep. have laws around... Um, essentially suppressing victims from being able to talk about their own sexual assaults. I think it was ACT, but don't quote me. Mm, yeah, p potentially. So um, essentially you have to go through a lengthy, very expensive court process to be able to talk about your own sexual assault, while perpetrators who are convicted can very happily talk yep. about whatever they want, even you know casting aspersions and blame on you, and you yep. can't defend yourself. So um, yeah, the Let Her Speak campaign has been working to uh, change that as well. Thank you for that. Um, in terms of uh, yeah, what other churches are doing, so a bunch of us here from so St John's Anglican up the road, and uh, the entity attached to that is Rough Edges, which deals mostly in homelessness. And like you, pro I, I'm horrible with stats, but the rising demographic is you know uh, women. older women. Um, and so in re related to that, we're opening up a kind of community space, a service, I guess, 
around specifically to DV. Uh, and so that, will, that won't be a crisis, though. It will be more long-term. Yeah. And so that, that we're opening that up probably around hopefully like August. And that's, that's kind of for the city, eastern suburbs kind of area mainly. Um, so that's that. And then the last question. Yeah. Um, so to be frank, uh, we're talking a lot about complementarian kind of theologies here. And I was wondering through your research how, you know, while you were doing this, uh, I guess the relationship between complementarian theology within these, the implications of that within church communities. Because, uh, I, yeah, I think we should challenge our theologies, whatever they are. And so for us as Christian com in Christian community, uh, yeah, what did you find, I guess, or your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I'm really careful to avoid talking about complementarian and egalitarian theology, so thanks for that. Because um, um, obviously I am egalitarian, a strong feminist egalitarian, um, but uh, many of my former colleagues and current colleagues um, in theological academia are complementarian. And so I'm quite happy to work alongside and with people who are complementarian. Um, I know that many egalitarians have reached the point where um, they no longer respect a complementarian viewpoint, um, which I understand is completely fair when some people who hold to a complementarian viewpoint do not respect at all the egalitarian viewpoint. Um, I try to be respectful um, because I think that a complementarian theology carries more risk. It, it just does. The research tells us it does. So whether that's the social research in prevention or whether that's the kind of research that Julia Baird and Haley Gleason have done, we know that a complementarian position carries more risk, which means that people who have a complementarian theological position have a responsibility to mitigate that risk. So if anything, people with a complementarian theology need to be working in the domestic and family violence space more than people with an egalitarian theology. So from where I sit trying to work in this space, especially in primary prevention, I can't afford to alienate people with a complementarian theology. So as much as when someone disrespects my viewpoint and tells me it's not godly and tells me it's not valid, and I want to say, well, actually, hey, I think the same of yours, I try really hard not to think that way because we're going to have to work together if we want societal change, if we want change in our churches. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Erin. Should we give her a clap? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to drink my water. I didn't drink. Um, I just wanted to make a bit of an ad hoc pastoral announcement that if, yeah, tonight has brought up something that you'd like some company to share that with. I'm around, Erin's around, Jess as well and Emma um, at the back. Yeah, so come and have a chat if you want to do that. Um, we'll be back next month for Peace Talks. Get on Facebook and also make sure you're, you're on our mailing list on those little handouts. Um, and Erin suggested that if there's, uh, if people want to explore this a little further, uh, St Mark's Nath National College has um, published a review, When Women Speak Domestic Violence in Australian Churches, which covers some of the Julia 
uh, Baird and Haley Gleason research. Um, so you can get that on their website, stmarks.edu.au slash products. I think we'll get you there. Um, so yeah, if you wanted to explore that more, jump on and do that. Um, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much again to Erin and thank you to those who are joining us on the podcast and we'll see you next month, hopefully. Thank you. We'll also continue chatting outside as well. <laughs>